Hey, welcome to the Impact Podcast by Youthopia. Join me in meeting the youth of Singapore who are making a positive impact to the world around them. Our guest for today is Kevin Tan. He is the founder and CEO of Trisector, which is a non-profit organisation that aims to connect different sectors to solve social issues. So, hi Kevin. Welcome. Hi, good to meet you. So, maybe you can start off by telling me a bit more about Trisector. Sure, ha- happy to share. So, uh, Trisector is a non-profit that's trying to create a enabling ecosystem for social innovation. Uh why that to me is really important is because, you know, I, I think for the last 50 years in Singapore, we've had a very uh, effective way of solving social issues, which is basically government does everything or does most things. And now that as problems become more and more complex, you know, with COVID, the fiscal situation becomes tighter and tighter. Uh, there's a greater need to see how we can get the rest of society involved also. So the question is, how? And what we do at Trisector is basically look at all the hows around the world, and then adapt the, the suitable ones to the Asian context, which is very different. Okay. Can you elaborate a bit more about that? So you mentioned that you look at how the models across the world have been done, and then you try to replicate it in Singapore. So what does that, how was that process like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I myself came, uh, first came across this model called Pay for Success back when I was in graduate school, back mm. in uh, the US. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I think one interesting thing that's been going around the world is that uh, because of the new generation of millennial wealth owners, there's a big demand for uh, ultra-high net worth individuals now to uh, invest their money for good. And in many countries around the world, um, that capital and the expertise that comes with that capital has been uh, used to help many social enterprises, nonprofits, and so on. Uh, achieve new impact that they wouldn't have otherwise achieved. I think in Singapore, you know, the the good news is that I think government has done a lot and a lot of the basic needs are, are solved. Uh, the question is then, how can we take advantage of this global trend mm. and use it in a complementary way to what's going on? So one of the models that I, uh, I, we use, this pay-for-success model, uh, does ex- exactly that. And have you share a bit more about how, how it does so. Uh, perhaps to use an, an analogy... Imagine doing startups today without venture capital. Mm. That's exactly what being a social entrepreneur or nonprofit person today is like. With you know, in a traditional startup, you know all the startups that you and I know, like Grab, Deliveroo, etc., the ones we use every day, uh, they all have gone through a very similar and very systematic process to go from idea to scale. There's a bunch of angel funders who seed them, then the venture capitalists come in to support them, help them professionalize, commercialize, and scale. And then after that, they go to the IPO, right? In the social sector, what happens is that uh, there is money, but it's at both ends of that spectrum. So on the one hand, you have people giving very small grants, saying, hey, you know, this is a great idea, get started. And on on the other hand, there's the government that's funding at a huge scale. Mm -hmm. But if you're a social entrepreneur today, you sort of get stuck in that middle where you exhaust the initial grant that you get, and then there's no way for you to really get to the kind of scale and actually bridge to to the government sort of level. Why is it then that the venture capitalists haven't managed to invest in social enterprises or social or even nonprofits today? And that's simply because there's no exit. You mm. can't IPO a, a nonprofit. Mm. Right. So what the pay for success model tries to do is it tries to connect those dots by um, enabling the nonprofits and social enterprises to price and measure their impact mm. 
convince government to pay for that impact if it succeeds, hence pay for success. And then by doing so, it then allows the social impact investors and innovative philanthropists to provide the same sort of venture capital support and, and funding that would exist in the for-profit sector so that these uh, social organizations can scale. Mm. Uh, so, you know, to give a, an example of something that we've just done in Hong Kong, um, one problem that Hong Kong faces is that there are a lot of ethnic minority children, uh, actually of uh, Indian and Pakistani descent, who don't speak Chinese or Cantonese. And when they go to school, they're not too sure what's going on. And so that leads them to have bad grades, to not be socially integrated. And so um, the uh, a service provider there, a nonprofit called Oxfam, they had come up with an intervention to help these uh, ethnic minority kids by giving them uh, language education when they're about three or four. But they got you know philanthropic funding and uh, that sort of was a small pilot. Right? Then the big question is, how do you go from that small pilot to a nationalizable program? So what we did with them there in this Pay for Success project is we helped them figure out what the value was, the social value was, and the potential cost savings, the cost efficiencies mm. the government was, if they managed to close that achievement gap. And we went to government and said, here's the price. Would you be willing to pay it if we could show you that actually we, we could close that gap? Yep. And the government said, yes, that makes sense because I would rather pay for prevention uh, of all the remedial services downstream um, than pay for the remedial, right? So that then allowed us to bring in about $5 million worth of uh, social impact investment mm. into Oxfam to scale up their, their small program, uh, completely transform the delivery model and uh, achieve about a 10x sort of scale up. And the idea here is that if it really does work, then uh, that's something that actually government would be very happy to try and adopt uh, later on. So uh, the idea here is that then um, from the private funder side, they might get the money back and then they can keep doing this over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, from Oxfam side, they got sort of uh, capacity building support to scale up. And on the government side, you know, they've made sure that every dollar that they spend actually has a real impact. So that's the win for everyone in that case. Mm. It's very interesting to me because I think I get a better sense now. It does sound like you guys are middlemen between many different stakeholders and across a variety of like sectors. I'm wondering if that is exhausting for you. All oh, right. Yeah. It is, but also energizing, I'd say. Uh, so my own background is, uh, you know, I studied political philosophy in uh, college. And actually, that, that uh, has turned out to be surprisingly useful mm. because um, what philosophy teaches you to do is break down problems to first principles and break down assumptions. And what I found is that actually many times the different sectors, they each have their own way of talking about things or viewing the world. So to get them to agree, what you need to do is take what they're saying, kind of break it down back to first principles, and then build it back up in a way that everybody can agree on, you mm. see. So I, I find that actually um, it's really interesting for me. Um, and, and personally, I, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the idea of trying to create something new that and adapt models uh, in a way that's not just copying what's happened in the West, but um, creating something that's really right for Singapore and the Asian context, that's something really fascinating to me. So I, I actually find it uh, really fun. Mm. Yeah. I, I have two questions to follow sure. up from that. I yeah. think the first thing is, why do you personally believe in like businesses or the, the future of businesses having a social impact? And secondly, what was the problem with like 
how things were being done previously. What was wrong with the status quo and why is there a need to kind of improve that? Sure, sure. Well, I, I think uh, on the first question of why do businesses need to be engaged in the, in the world, uh, I don't think it's an opinion anymore. Mm. They are having to do it uh, because the consumers want it, their um, employees want it, and their shareholders want it. So uh, I think businesses, private wealth, everybody needs to find some way of engaging in, in the world. And even on the other side of the table, which are the traditional philanthropies, they themselves are, are converging and realizing that they need to do things differently. Mm. So, for example, you know, there's this famous example where um, the, the Gates Foundation, one of the biggest foundations in the world, they were providing philanthropy to um, solve cancer downstream uh, somewhere in, in Africa. And um, the way foundations work is that uh, they have a big endowment to that invest and then take those proceeds to give away. What they then realized was actually though the endowments invested in some of the things upstream that were causing the cancer that they were then trying to solve downstream. Right? So uh, because of things like that, I think even the philanthropists are starting to realize that they need to change the way in which they invest. Um, so I, I think the whole world is sort of converging towards this impact uh, continuum. As to what was, what's wrong with the, the status quo, if the, if the status quo is everyone is needing to move towards impact, mm. then I think what's the, uh, what danger is is that it becomes a greenwash. You know, how do we make sure that actually if the different sectors like the government and the businesses and the philanthropies are going to try and do things differently, how do we make sure that it's actually effective rather than everyone saying you know, the, the usual buzzwords yep. that have happened a lot in this, in this sector? So uh, what I see the pay-for-success model, and, and of course not just that, but other related models trying to do, is to make sure that whatever collaboration occurs, is to everybody's comparative advantage and is the most effective thing that can be done. Mm. I, I want to try to understand sure. the pay-for-success model yeah, a little bit course. better. In that I think I'm a bit confused. So I understand that you guys um, measure success and then you bring that kind of metrics and like the, the statistics to like the government and the funders, right? Yeah. But how does like the money like flow essentially? Yeah, that's right. So it's a three-step process. So first, the private funders... Uh, provide long-term risk-taking capital together with capability-building support to a social service provider mm. or social impact organization, whether it's a non-profit or a social enterprise. Step two is they, they do their thing. Step three, and here's the twist, is that some rigorous measurement is done to quantify the value of the social impact that was achieved, and the government then repays the original funders mm. of the project uh, based on the value of mm. the impact. And so by doing that based on value, there's then an incentive for the different stakeholders to achieve the, the most efficient outcome. Uh, and on the government side, usually that value is tied to some sort of uh, cost efficiency benchmark or cost savings benchmark. So it's better than what would have happened otherwise. Mm. Mm. And sorry, just to kind of round of that up. Yeah, yeah. Previously, how was that? Because it, it does feel like something that's quite like circular. I want to say circular, cyclical. Right. I don't know. But how was it previously? Was it like, yeah, how was yeah. the flow previously? So I think the status quo is um, on both sides of the table. So on the government side, it's a grant. Mm. So they would say, um, I will fund you, social service provider, for the number of people you serve. Mm. So if I'm a social service provider, I might say, actually, you know, it's great that you're funding me and the, the problem persists. So 
to use a, a toy example, uh, you know, one, one of our providers we work with, they're funded to uh, serve people who are in jail, right? And that's quite strange because if, if you're the provider, you, you definitely want to keep people out of jail. Yep. But actually, your funding KPI is the more people who are in jail, the better, right? Yep. So th- that leads to a, a difference in incentives. Yep. That is certainly not something that is top of mind for the service providers, but it makes it more difficult for them to do what they actually really want to do, which mm. is keep people out. Uh, on the other side of the table, on the philanthropic side of the table, the status quo is similarly that they, they grant fund some sort of program, but that program never gets to the sort of scale that it deserves. So to give you an example, uh, in Singapore uh, in 2016, which is the latest figures I could find, all philanthropy in Singapore is about $2 billion. Mm. Government social spending is about $32 billion. So for philanthropy to really make an impact, it needs to find a way to uh, work with government. And that bridge, I think, is something that is not done very systematically. You know, mm-hmm. So uh, a philanthropy might fund a program and then try and pressure government by writing an advocacy paper or so on. But actually, are the programs that, that get adopted then the ones that are most effective? Mm. Uh, you know, it's not as systematic as that. Mm. So I guess like you provide that kind of like checks and balances for them as well. That's right. That's oh, right. And, and a pathway, yep. you know, a very yep. systematic pathway yep. for them to, for that to happen. Interesting. Can you give me an example of like something that has worked in the US or like, because you said that you take reference yeah. from UK and the US, right? What is an example of something that has worked and you look up to that you hope that can be replicated in Asia? Yeah, well, I'd say that the rationale for doing it is pretty different in the US and UK. But, you know, one place where uh, before coming home, I actually helped to launch a project uh, was Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. Uh, Salt Lake actually turns out to be a lot like a a mini Singapore in that um, uh, Salt Lake uh, has a budget surplus. It's It's a Republican city, so very fiscally conservative. But uh, because they're Mormon, so they're also very inclined to give. So that means that they're mm-hmm. very interesting social policy and very progressive social policy. M- much like we do, very smart sort of social policy. Uh, so the, the project we were doing there was to solve the problem of homelessness. Uh, Salt Lake's government on its own had already solved the problem of uh, what they call chronic homelessness, which is people staying on the streets for more than a year by kind of doing HTB, like giving everybody a house. But what they discovered was that then there's a next layer of people who they call the persistently homeless who cycle in and out of the homeless shelter, not necessarily because they don't have a house, but because they have a whole bunch of other issues related to mental health issues, addiction, and and so on. Uh, So this is a really complex issue, and it's not clear what exactly the, the right solution was. So in this case, we actually worked with a social service provider who was providing the shelter Uh, their name was The Road Home, and they said, you know, look, I don't want to be in the shelter business. I want to be in the home business. That's why I started this this agency. So the program we were trialing of them was uh, whether or not you could provide short-term rental assistance to people who are in the shelter, along with very intensive wraparound services. And if they were able to uh, do that and get people back on their feet, then the hypothesis is that actually then they don't need to come back to shelter, they don't go to jail, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So there's a lot of downstream savings. So uh, in this one, uh, we got about $5 million worth of investment from 12 different funders all around the US and the world, actually, even as far as Australia, who were interested in seeing this program succeed. Uh, That was provided to the shelter provider to uh, give this wraparound support and try this new thing that they'd never done before. And then if it works out, the government would actually repay the original funders 
based on the downstream estimated downstream savings from not having provide the kind of shelter or jail services as a result. Um, so I think from the mayor's perspective, you know, his name is Ben McCallum's very innovative guy. He want he liked this not necessarily to save money for government because he felt like government's role was to spend money but do so effectively. Um, he liked it because it led to more innovation on the ground and he could be responsible to his taxpayers, which which I think was what he's uh, keen to do. So I think that philosophy of like fiscal prudence, of innovation, mm. that, that's the kind of thing that I think already is, is key in Singapore. Mm. So how do we uh, use these new models to uh, really make it something that's right for our context? I think that's something that I'm keen to achieve. Mm. I just want to touch on a point. Sure. So does it mean that, I mean, with, with all the things that you shared, does it mean that you prior to, I guess, Tri-Sector's existence, you yeah. felt like the spending, uh, government spending on like some of the social projects in Singapore was not effective or wasn't, yeah, like wasn't spent effectively essentially? No, I, I don't think so. It's more that um, I think traditionally we've had a very centralised way mm. of uh, planning for social services and social interventions, which uh, is understandable because uh, I think in the early days of Singapore society, government was probably the most efficient planner and the needs was, were, were sort of basic needs. So uh, it was quite obvious what the solutions were, right? And so in that circumstance, actually the right thing to do is for government to take the lead, mm. plan it and, and get everybody else to follow its lead. Uh, what I'm saying though is that now that we've reached the, the policy frontier, mm. probably, and all these issues are so complex that nobody really knows the answer, mm. then we got to think of how do we set up the uh, not just the actual policy, but the, the, the structure is such that everybody else can also yep. uh, you know, uh, co-create and come up with better ideas together, right? And now that civil society has also uh, become much more uh, capable, how can we draw on their intelligences to actually solve these problems together so that it's not just government also having to bear the burden of everything? Mm. So I, I think, um, you know, government already knows this, right? This, uh, this budget is called Emerging Stronger Together. The question is, I think, not so much the why anymore, but just the how. Mm. Uh, and, and I think the, the danger with the current how is that traditionally, it's really an improvement that we want to involve civil society in solving things. But an involvement currently, I think, mostly means we come up with the program, you donate mm. or you volunteer. Mm. And that's probably useful for, for people who are new to this space. But it feels like a wasted opportunity to and a bit of underutilization of uh, all the expertise that also exists in civil society. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. <laughs> okay. I want to know a bit more about you. Sure. Um, I'm very interested in though because I think y you sound like a really smart individual. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very interested in though. I think a very Singaporean way, maybe, sure. right, would be if I have all this knowledge about like government systems and like political science and theory and philosophy even, right, I think people would want to go into the government sector where policies are being issued out. I'm wondering what motivated you to kind of step out of that oh. standard path, first of all. And yeah, maybe share a bit more about like, have you ever doubted that, doubted yourself, felt like, you know, your ideas weren't going to work. Maybe this isn't such a good thing to embark on. Yeah, I, I think a short answer is that there are people who are much smarter than me who can do a much better job in the, in the civil service. Uh, my sister herself, actually, is, is one of civil servants. Um, for me, I felt like my comparative advantage was that I'm a, I'm a builder wonk, you know? Um, I may be 80% there in terms of, like, thinking about all these policy and systems level things. But maybe one thing that I uh, am good at 
in addition is being able to get people to uh, work with me to to start some new things. Mm. And I think that temperament and also that life stage that I'm in allows me to try to do something a little bit different uh, that will complement government uh, on this side of the table. Uh, so I think for now, at least, this is how I think I can best contribute. And that's uh, why, I, why I did it this way. As to whether I've ever doubted myself, uh, for sure, for sure. You know, when I first came back, I, I, I always thought that because, you know, government was calling for uh, overseas Singaporeans to learn overseas, best practices, and then come back home. Uh, I guess it was a little naive, right? I thought that when I came back, I'd have this rare expertise in having launched these projects overseas and people would say, oh, that, that's really great. You know, how do we do it? But, you know, many times I met people and they'd say, you're, you're too young to be doing this. Mm. Or they'd say, I'm really glad that at least you got to meet your family, which is quote for, you know, go away, right? Mm. Um, and I think those were days when, frankly, you look at yourself, right? And you hear your friends talking about um, buying a house or settling down and you're thinking, how many more months of food do I have left? But you really ask, like, is it worth it? Like, do you, do you really want to do this? And, and what's the, the end goal, right? So I don't think that it's as binary an answer as I've always felt like, you know, all systems go and, and this is something that I, I'll do. But I'd say that the long-term trajectory has been up and that I felt like, frankly, a sense of duty to, to do it well and to contribute what I've been given uh, back, to, back to the place that gave it to me. Mm. So what motivates you? What gets you up in the morning? <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I think first, per my original intention, uh, I, I think it's important what we're doing. You know, I, I think that right now, ever since Mr. Lee Kuan Yew passed away, there seems to be a real question in the air of what does the next 50 years look like in Singapore? And if through my work, I can contribute in a small way towards that, that answer, I think it would be something that would be, be worth it. I think the second thing is that is the team. You know, I think I, I'm really blessed to have people, uh, young Singaporeans who are extraordinarily capable, who join Trisector, having had the opportunity to do anything else in the world as well. And, and so uh, I think having people beside me launch is great. And third, I, I think that intellectually to me as well, uh, it's really interesting, you know, I, having studied political philosophy and public policy, uh, I really believe that a lot of the, uh, the advances in these fields aren't really going to be made in academic papers, but what can actually be put into action. And I see myself as trying to show what really is possible. So, you know, if we say that actually there are new ways in which governance can occur, where different uh, civil society and state relationships can occur, well, let's not write a paper. Let's actually prove it. Let's prove the value of civil society to, to government. So that's what I get to do every day. And, and that's, a, that's a blessing. Mm, yeah. Very cool. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the social entrepreneurs who are interested in doing business for good, right? Sure. What are some types of advice that you would give somebody who's interested in social entrepreneurship? So when I first started doing this, I think I had a very binary view of the world which is what I think society encourages us to have, where it is either 100% corporate mm. or 100% impact. And if you want to do a social enterprise, you got to jump both feet in and do it full time, etc. Right? Um, 
but I think the reality is a little bit more mixed. Uh, sometimes to have the most impact, actually, you can have a lot of impact within a, a structured uh, corporate setting. And actually, sometimes to do a social enterprise, you can still do it on the side, you know. So what I'd say is that if you're thinking of doing a social enterprise, I think that's great. Um, there's nothing quite like creating something impactful in the world. Uh, but what is the best way to do it for yourself that actually has the most impact? I think that's something that's worth uh, thinking about. So, for example, I would say that um, most of the time, uh, the correct answer is start it on the side while you have another job. And then once it takes off and you can't afford to spend the time anymore in your main job, then you do it full time. That's probably, I think, the optimal way to do most uh, to, to do it most of the time. Uh so, so that's something that I, I think I've, I've learned. Um, and um, I think throughout this process, you just have to keep being honest with yourself as to whether or not you really are having the most impact you could have. Mm. Okay. So I think my last question would be, how do you foresee um, the social impact space evolving in the next couple of years and in the future? Yeah, you know, I, I see a lot of promise. On the one hand, on the ground, uh, especially with COVID, I think there's been an awareness like nothing before that some kind of initiative needs to be taken from the bottom up. And it, it's great to see the flowering of all of these uh, initiatives. Uh, and on the other side, I think uh, on the government side, similarly, there's also been a, an openness that's been signaled like never before, right? uh, in terms of uh, SG together, wanting to work together with, with the ground. So my hope is that um, those two trends will converge and we'll find a way for the state and civil society to work together in a, in a really effective way. My fear, if I can share, is that this turns out to be a passing phase. And both sides really leave more cynical. You know, the the ground up guys feeling like actually, you know, I wasn't really being listened to. This was this was uh, a flash in the pan. I need to go back to my corporate job. And on the government side, seeing oh, you know, these ground up guys, you're not really that effective after all. Mm. Uh, we should just do things ourselves in, in the future, right? And I, I think the answer to that question, whether whether the hope pans out or the fear pans out, I think is going to be really important in terms of how uh, Singapore is shaped for the next fifty years. So. Uh, I, I think that's where I, I see the, the future. Mm, and how, how do we make sure that it doesn't become the undesired outcome? Right. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say other than, you know, <laughs> I, I voted with my feet. And, uh, you know, I, I think what I'd say is that I didn't, I don't think this is a good idea because I set up Trisector. I set up Trisector because I thought this was a good idea and needed it happen. So I think one piece of the puzzle is new models and new ways of interaction. Uh, but certainly, I think more broadly, there is, there is a, a mindset shift that needs to occur, uh, both on the government side, but also on the civil society side, of what the role of, of uh, state and civil society should be. Um, you know, I think on the civil society side, we, sh we shouldn't expect the state to have all of the answers. Mm. Uh, because sometimes there just aren't any, they're just trade-offs, right? And the, that sort of pins down the state to and their freedom of action. And we should be more forgiving with the state so that they, they can also open up more. 
And on the other side, I think the state needs to um, help to uh, uh, broaden its conception of what value civil society could add uh, beyond hands, beyond wallets. Could they also be brains? Could they also um, have initiative? How do we encourage that kind of higher value add activity? I think those are the, the mixed uh, level questions that I'd like the, the state to ask. So um, I, I think there's some work to be done on, on both sides, but you know, um, I see some a, a real sincerity amongst the different parties. So I hope to see that happen. Yeah. Cool. Any last nuggets of wisdom, even though you've dished out many? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I think it's a very personal journey, uh, this this path. Mm. But uh, you know, if if anyone ever wants to talk about their own journey, um, you know, they're, they're welcome to, to reach out. Uh, they can find me at the, the website, uh, trisector.org. And, you know, I'm always happy to take LinkedIn requests uh, so that other people don't make the same mistakes that I have, uh, which I'm, I'm sure I've made many of. Yeah. Okay, I think that was really insightful. Thank you for sharing. Sure. And thanks for coming on the episode. Sure, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having me. This show was brought to you by Youthopia. This project showcases everyday Singaporeans that have made an impact in our society. Have someone in mind? Nominate that person at utopia.sg forward slash impact.